gift of the Holy Spirit. And as we talk about spiritual gifts, uh, we pray that your spirit might work more mightily in our hearts. Apart from you, we can do nothing. And apart from the Holy Spirit working within us, we could have no knowledge of you. We could have no uh, conquering of sin. Uh, everything is attributed to your Holy Spirit working in us. And we just give you praise for the Trinity, for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three in one. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in 1 Corinthians 12. Technically, we're at verse 27. Uh, I'm going to kind of um, just make sure I bring you a little bit up to speed from uh, the, the whole chapter, and then we'll launch into the final verses of chapter 12 today. Uh, <clears throat> whenever we're talking about spiritual gifts, we always say there's there's one spirit and many gifts. Okay, so, and I, I drew this just because some people get, do better with visuals. In this illustration, this visual, um, the focus is on the one spirit. But I'm convinced that what we do is flip it upside down in, our, in the way that we treat gifts. We say, oh yeah, there's one spirit, but there's many gifts. And let's spoke, focus almost all of our attention on the many gifts. So we flip it upside down. Um, and I think that's directly the opposite of what 1 Corinthians 12 wants you to do. So it wants you to, this is, this is the goal here, oneness. Uh, the variation of gifts is not the focus. In fact, a lot of people like to take the time, and, and we will do some of this, to try to talk about the individual gifts. But I think we spend so much time on the individual gifts that we fail to just realize it's one Spirit, and that's the main the main point of this. Um, and when we do that, we disrupt the whole passage. So, um, look at twelve. Um, let's see, twelve, twelve. Um, just as the body is one. And has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. So, number one, verse 12 is uh, emphasizing the, the oneness of the body, right? You're using uh, the body as an illustration, and the point of the body is that no matter what member you are, you're attached to the one body, right? And so if you look at this, uh, verse 12, just as the body has, is one and has many members, and all the members, all the members of the body, though many are one body, 
you would expect it to say, so it is with, it says Christ, but what would you expect it to say? The church. The church, right? You expect it to say the church. Um, but he doesn't say that. He says, so it is with Christ. Because the idea is that the, the church, no matter what portion of the church you're in, no matter what gifts you have, you are a part of Christ. Now think about the, um, the divisions that were in Corinth and how they were using the gifts that they had to actually emphasize their divisions within the church. And he says, no, you're all members of Christ. Okay, so that's, that's where I'm getting this. So, um, uh, Annalise Vesey. Okay, so um, you are a member of Christ in his body. So don't think of yourself as a, an append, like attachment, like my ring is on my body, right? But it's not my body. It's, it's, it's an adornment. It's something you can put on, you can take it off. If you took this ring off of the body, it would still be a ring. What happens if you cut your finger off? In some sense, it no longer even is a ring anymore. I mean, a finger anymore. I mean, it's a dead piece of flesh. I mean, you can call it a finger if you want, but it's, it's really not. So that's the same thing with you. You are all members of Christ. No matter what your gift is, no matter how little you think you are a part of the body of Christ or how insignificant you think you are, the point of 1 Corinthians 12 is to say that the one spirit lives in you that lives in the rest of the church and you are a part of one body, Christ. So when you start thinking little of yourself, and I didn't pick Annalise out because she thinks little of herself, but when you do, you're, you're denying Christ. He looks at you as a part of himself. Right? Okay. Uh, as a pastor, I realize how many people in the church feel like they don't belong. And it's not just because of giftedness. It's just they just don't fit in. They don't feel connected to the rest of the body. They feel alone. Paul's solution to this is to tell them that you have the same Holy Spirit in you as those other click over here that's getting along just fine and feels very important. You're just as important to him as those who, don't, who, who seem to be more central. And I think that's a, that's a part of this. Now, how many people use 1 Corinthians 12 to try to teach this lesson? We just immediately jump to the gifts, which is why I think that this is what we do. We invert it, and we focus all of our attention on the various gifts. Which one do I have? Paul is trying to help those who have less gifts who don't feel like they have any gifts, to know that they're part of the body. You belong. It also totally disrupts the concept of, I'm just going to be, me and Christ, off alone. We are called to be connected to the body. That can be the local church, but it even challenges how we interact churches to church. Uh, one of the most boring parts of General Assembly to me is when they do overtures, or not overtures, but like, like welcomes from other denominations that come to General Assembly, and we talk about our unity, and, 
And it just seems like this formal, you know, it's just like, oh, please, let's get to the business. But technically, it's a really good thing to do because you want to be able to acknowledge openly that, yes, you people over here are part of the body of Christ, too. It's not just us. So, um, very important. I I preached this uh, section of Scripture during COVID. So... um, I was looking through my notes as I was preparing for this, and, and so guess what word rings out in my mind? What was, what were, was one of the questions about um, who could be out doing things? Essential, right? That's, a, that's, that's why I have essential here. Yeah, I forgot I wrote it down. But yeah, uh, you're, you're essential. are you essential or are you not essential? Now, what would Christ say to you? You're all essential. Right? I mean, you are all part of my body, therefore you are essential. Period. <clears throat> yes. Mm-hmm. Well, Paul's the same author of both, right? I mean, it's, once you start kind of getting how these, uh, his heartbeat, you can see that all he's doing in Colossians, he's actually teaching the theology. But in, in Corinthians, he's actually just applying his theology. Like, he's not... It's not a theological treatise on the oneness of, of the church and this body. It's just him trying to, to deal with these people that are divided and proud and arrogant and looking down on others. And he's just saying, that's completely opposite to the theology that we hold. Okay? Uh, and then we're almost down to 27 now. So 26, if one member suffers, all suffer together. See how... That, that does, that's not talking about various gifts, right? That's talking about the, that if you cut your leg, the whole person suffers, right? John knows I just cut my leg recently. <laughs> we won't talk too much about it. <laughs> you don't say, oh, man, my legs hurt, so let's just cut, get rid of that, and we'll you know, go on keeping me. It's like this concept that everybody hurts it's not just that you're, you're loving and you care for others. You actually look at the other person as a part of who you are. Same kind of thing's supposed to go on in marriages, too. right? Uh, in Ephesians, Paul says, if you, if you fail to love your wife, you're actually failing to love yourself. That's a really, I mean, that's a, Wow. You know, and so when we fail to love the rest of the body of Christ, we're actually failing to love ourselves because we're all part of this same body. Okay. He he goes and he talks about um, honorable parts and less honorable parts, and and you might just look at that as the parts that require more attention. You know, some people. Um, I always tease like Sandra Fender. Uh, Sandra, most of you guys, she can't get to church very often now, um, but Sandra is like the, the, never complains. I visit Sandra once in three years, and I sit down, talk with her for three hours. She's happy as a lark, but she's not like, what a bum pastor Mike is, because he's not here every week. You know, what? she just is not a problem person. Um, and, and so you have some people in the body that maybe require more attention. But Paul says that that's as it should be. Some people don't need attention as much. Some other people do, and that's okay because we're all part of the same body. We love each other, you know, so that's a, it's okay. I have other people say, man, I feel like I'm taking all of your time. Well, that's okay, you know, because we're part of the one body, and that's, a, that's the way it should be. 
If one member suffers, all suffer. If one member is honored, we're all honored. That's in verse 26. We all get glad together. Right? So then we get to verse 27, and let's have a reader now. Uh, Barry's going to give the microphone. Uh, Let's give this to uh, Kyle back there in the back. Let's read 27 through the end of the chapter. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. Okay, thank you. So, now, even a little bit more background. Oh, boy. Is there a spiritual gift to cleaning the whiteboard? Okay, um, Pentecostalism, okay, talk a little bit about Pentecostalism. Pentecostalism begins in the early 20th century, about 130 years ago, formally, uh, shortly after the Civil War. The Pentecostal church is a formal church that accepts the fullness of all the gifts lifted, listed here. So you might see things like first apostolic church. Well, they're saying that because they believe that the gift of apostle, apostleship is still continuing today. Um, so Pentecostalism, I don't, I don't know how to divide this out, but Pentecostalism is... You know, it's an arm of the church. It's, it's not like this huge uh, movement in the church. But the charismatic church, or the charismatic movement, is massive. So the way you distur- distinguish charismatic movement from Pentecostalism is often the charismatic church is not in a particular, it's not its own denomination. You can find char- the charismatic thinking in just about any church. You can find it in the Catholic church. You can find it anywhere you, you, know, you can see this charismatic thinking. But the charismatic movement still embraces the primary tenets of Pentecostalism. That makes sense. And generally speaking, Pentecostals and Charismatics have been known to talk about a second work of the Holy Spirit. That's what defines them. A second working of the Holy Spirit. And the purposes of this second work of the Holy Spirit are to give us a greater sense of God's presence and God's power. That's the point. Okay? Now, Since the beginning of Pentecostalism, and literally, I'm telling you, 
1900, 125, 130 years ago. There's been no other portion of the church that has grown faster, particularly overseas. Um, Whenever you hear about the growth in Africa, it is the Pentecostal slash charismatic church. That's what it is. Very, very uh, much. I mean, there's probably Reformed churches over there. I'm sure there are. Uh, But that's the primary thing. Um, John Huguet, an Anglican minister, member of All Saints Church, writes this. Prophecy, tongues, and interpretation, words of knowledge and wisdom, discerning spirits, an inrush of faith, miracles, healing gifts are all valuable. Though some Christians are given these, all are encouraged to seek them. So, um, who doesn't want more of God's presence and God's power? Anybody here not want that? <laughs> Atheists, that's right. <laughs> we all want God's presence and power. If you don't, that you really are not a Christian. I mean, it's part of being a Christian is to say, I want to know God more, and I want him to have more control of my life. Okay? Um, but do I need a second working of the Holy Spirit, sometimes called a, a baptism of the Holy Spirit? That's the question. Uh, should I be seeking the sign gifts? So in other words, to, to, to seek God's presence and power, which everyone should do, is that the same as seeking the sign gifts in your life? That's really the distinction between a charismatic and a non-charismatic. <clears throat> Um, without, according to the Pentecostal charismatic movement, without the second working of the Holy Spirit, Christian will continue to be defeated in his Christian walk. And he will be ineffective in his witness for Jesus Christ. Now, I'm telling you this because um, if Pentecostalism is true, then, then we got a problem in our own church. Uh, because um, we're not bursting at the seams. Well, we're seeing some growth, seeing new people come. That's a good thing. But, but, hardly be saying we we couldn't make the argument wow we're seeing such powerful growth that we could go to the pentecostal and say we're seeing all the power we need so in america as you see the church dying you begin to say oh you doubt maybe it's because we're quenching the holy spirit by denying this second work of the holy spirit (laughs) um this is why you get the terminology Presbyterians as the frozen chosen. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, well, it, <laughs> it's funny. Uh, she's not here right now. She said she's going to be here. But um, it, I was talking with Tanya Tomasi, who's kind of come out of the charismatic movement. At some point, I would love to uh, uh, even let her talk a little bit. I do this in my church history class, talk about... Um, um, what is it, Azusa Street Revival in 1906 um, out in California, L.A., and different things. But um, I don't feel like I can do justice to that right now, um, except in maybe bits and pieces as we move along. Um, uh, it, it just began in, formally in Los Angeles in 1906, um, at the Azusa Street Revival. Um, anyway, I'm not prepared to go into too many details on that. Yeah. But that's a, that's a great question because uh, there are um, a lot of questionable things that occurred at that beginning. Um, and it was really interesting talking to Tanya about this um, because she's really versed on some of this stuff, uh, knows a lot of the details. But, so my... my um, the reason why I even go into this, and the reason why I want you to even have kind of a context of this, is because I'm not a Pentecostal because I don't think it, it uh, most accurately explains 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. That's why I think the Bible doesn't teach it. If I were convinced that the Bible taught it, I would be required to become a Pentecostal. You understand that? And you should be too. So, so it's not just, um, you know, do you have a preference? I didn't grow up in that tradition. You know, and I'm not telling you that my Pentecostal or charismatic, every Pentecostal, every charismatic is, is a uh, heretic and is an heir. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that I am not convinced biblically and so that's why as we go through these chapters uh this is the you have to ask yourself the question are you convinced of this is this the best understanding of first corinthians 12 13 and 14 because that is uh that's the argument of the pentecostal church that we are getting back to the bible and my argument is no you're not now you, you'll have to decide that as we go through the text but i just want you to to understand that but it, it Fair enough. Uh, if I could be convinced, then I would be forced to change because I am bound to try to follow the Bible. So the, um, you said you know of people who are charismatic that may very well be believers. Oh, yeah. The only thing I wonder about if they're speaking in tongues, where do you think that's coming from? <laughs> it's always a question. Um, uh, I'm going to have to just, you're going to have to see that come out as we explain this. Um, ultimately, I punt. I don't make a judgment. Uh, I, I don't try to understand what the Spirit could or could not do. Um, when I, when I um, the illustration that I have on the power of the Holy Spirit is a sailing ship. So, um, 
when we, when we have a sailing ship, you can trim the sails, you can turn the rudder, and you can get the ship going in a direction, but the wind has to take it and push it. And the Spirit is, is like that wind. I mean, it's called wind. <laughs> it's called a breath. Um, so I think sometimes the Spirit can be working, but it, it, we, tend to, we tend to think that the Spirit can't work if someone's not and perfectly aligned in their doctrine. And that's, that's not always the case. Um, I, I think, you know, I, I might have a correct doctrine in an area, but then a, a Pentecostal person may actually be more godly than I am, you know, at least in a certain area. And that doesn't mean that truth and, and error don't matter. It just means that God graciously works by His Spirit. If He works in a Presbyterianism, it's not because we have perfect doctrine. It's because God's gracious, you know. And so it, we have to just keep that mindset. It's not, you can't think, well, Pentecostalism is fundamentally not correct, and therefore it must all be terrible. It must all be. A, that's not the case. I think that there are godly people within the charismatic movement. And my desire is not to condemn any one person. It's more to try to say, um, as we walk through this text, and I'm purposely going slower than I normally go. I'm sorry if some of you were like, come on, let's get to it. Because I think that this is such an area that we, it's just, it's divisive. It's, you know, battling, it's fighting. And, and I want us to, to just walk slowly through it and try to come to the realization that, um, that, what, what does the Bible teach on this? And, and be okay with that without necessarily condemning someone who doesn't agree with us yet. <clears throat> Since you're okay with going slow, would you mind doing like just a brief introductory level comment on what Pentecostals believe that's different from us for the folks at home who may not know? Well, you hear that just a minute ago, it's the second work of the Spirit. What does that mean? It means that, oh, 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 thank you, thank you. I meant it, yes. So, what I mean, so, um, so here you are, here's your life, and you are an unbeliever, and you hear the gospel, you believe, and so at some point you are saved. Um, and they'll acknowledge that you are even indwelt by the Holy Spirit uh, in, in salvation. But at some point later on, you need a second work. And that second work is this baptism of the Holy Spirit. And it will increase the power and the presence of God. So uh, power to overcome sin, power to, um, to preach the gospel. So... You're going to lack power and presence unless you do this. And you need to ask for this second work to happen. That's, that's, is that what you were looking for? Correct. You have, so you have, these are, the, these are regular believers, and then you get a higher level of belief. Now, you want to take that mic back to Nathan. So right off the bat, right off the bat, the second working of the Holy Spirit, in my opinion, is a denial of what we just started at the beginning of this, that we're all one and doesn't matter what, how many gifts you have or how you're doing, you're just as essential to the body of Christ. So right now we're talking about a second tier of Christianity. Now, every Christian struggles 
in their personal growth, what I would call the fruit of the Spirit, uh, throughout their life. Um, and, of course, we always want more. But this idea of a second baptism, this powerful presence, is, is something that you have to seek. And the reason why the church hasn't experienced it is because we haven't sought it. We've actually denied it. Um, I'm getting to you, Nathan. 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 and 20. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Right? That'd be a, you've quenched it. You've said, if you don't believe in the second working of the Spirit, you've quenched the Spirit. Therefore, you're, 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 uh, it, it's your own disobedience that is um, messing this up. Go ahead, Nathan. It's interesting that he even switched over to ghost terminology. Uh, it, there, there's a Holy Ghost is King James, right? So it's, it's um, anyway, um, yeah. Yes, right. So the disciples were believers prior to Pentecost. They were a mess, right? You read in the Gospels, you read the disciples doing all kinds of stupid stuff you know and then pentecost hits bam power for ministry yeah we're talking about that too yeah <laughs> um that's the john's pentecost um so um i have written down here in my notes basically an answer to your question which is it is not my place. I don't have the wisdom. I don't have the knowledge to understand what God is doing in the heart of another person. What I can judge is to look at a spiritual gift as it is presented today and compare it with what was going on in the book of Acts, in the book of 1 Corinthians. My argument is, is that it's much more limited. I do not believe what is occurring today is what occurred in the New Testament era. That's my statement. So I, I don't have to try to understand what's happening. Has anybody read the book Bruchko? Yeah. I mean, he goes off, he's in one cannibalistic tribe, makes some progress, and he wants to go off to this other cannibalistic tribe. Everyone in the tribe that he's in says, don't do it. He goes off on his own anyway. Who knows all the problems that occur? And then uh, he comes back months later, maybe, maybe years later, it's a long time, and he says that he has shared the gospel with them and they've responded. And, uh, and, and they said, well, how did you do that? He says, well, I just told them the gospel. He says, but you don't speak their language. And he didn't even know he just, you know, and it's not my job to say, well, that's just a bunch of malarkey. How would I know that that's a bunch of malarkey? You know, it could be true. You know, it's his testimony of that. And so maybe it was, and God can do that. He could actually, you know, miraculously work in 
Baruchko to be able to share the gospel in the language of the people, okay? I don't have to judge that. I don't have to say it's wrong. I just have to, to try to understand how does that fit into the Bible. And I would say what happened with Bruchko may have been a gift of miraculous tongues in that moment, but it wasn't the gift of tongues because Bruchko would have had it the rest of his life. Because in the Bible, if you have the gift of tongues, you have it the rest of your life. Not just one instance. It was a miraculous gift of language in that moment, maybe, but it wasn't the gift of tongues. All right, so where does Paul start? He starts with apostles, okay? Um, God has appointed in the church first apostles. Now, apostleship is not a spiritual gift, right? It's It's an office. But the office of an apostle usually came with gifts, Okay. Um, now, let's turn over to Acts 1, 21 and 22. This is the situation in, uh, where Judas has been cut out from the apostles and, and why is that a big deal that Judas is cut out? Why do they feel like they need to have another one to replace Judas? Well, why do we need 12? Well, who cares? <laughs> it's a complete number. You need to have the complete church, right? It's not a partial church. You have the complete church because this is a Presbyterian doctrine. We believe Christ died for his elect, and therefore all of his elect will be saved, 100% of them. The complete full church. There won't be any missing. So the fact of Judas being missing looks like you've got an arm cut off. And so symbolically, they want to replace him. Now, there were more apostles than the, the 12. Uh, Paul himself was an apostle. But, um, but the, the criteria for an apostle is laid out for us uh, in Acts 1, 21 and 22. Can somebody read that for me? Uh, just raise your hand. We'll bring you the mic. There you go. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went through in Acts 1-1, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of those must become a witness with us Okay, so what are the criteria here? There's at least two criteria for an apostle. Right, so you had to, if this is the cross on your timeline, you had to have spent time with him here, and then you also had to visibly uh, witness his resurrection. And so they narrow it down to a couple guys, and they choose one of them, okay, Um, uh, by uh, casting of lots. How does Paul fit into this? He's an apostle. (laughs) 
And this is why he says he's abnormally born. Okay? He wasn't a disciple here. He may have known about Jesus here. Sure he did. But he wasn't someone who was with him as a disciple. And he wasn't a witness to Jesus prior to his ascension. He was a witness to Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, after his ascension into heaven. And so he calls himself abnormally born. Okay? And he also kind of refers to himself as the last, the least, you know, it's like I'm the, the worst of the apostles, I persecuted the church, those kind of things. So, um, okay, so apostles have a function. Uh, why did they need to have seen the resurrected Christ, his bodily form? Why was that important to be an apostle? They're bearing witness. Don't you bear witness? You're, you're, you share the gospel. Don't you bear witness to Jesus being Lord? Okay. How is our witness different than their witness? Carrie. Right. And the apostles, it, the church, and I go through, over this during Easter a lot of times when I'm trying to explain the importance of the apostolic witness. But the church, the whole church, depends upon the testimony of the apostles. You get rid of the apostles, there's no church. Because their witness is not just of, oh, I think these things make sense, this is what happened, oh, I have an empty tomb. No, the apostles' witness is we saw and touched the resurrected Jesus Christ bodily. That's their testimony. That's why the apostles have such an important place in the church. And it's also true that when Jesus was um, in the last uh, week of his life, he's teaching his disciples. He says, I got many things to teach you. I will give you the Holy Spirit and he will do what? Guide you into all truth. Right? So, And we take that as uh, applying to the church at large, and in some way it does apply to the church at large, but initially it applies to these apostles. They are the ones who actually were given supernatural knowledge of the truth, and this is why in the book of Acts, the, the early church devoted themselves to what? The apostles' teaching. Because the apostles are the ones that Jesus says, I am going to use you as the foundation to make sure that the whole uh, newness of the gospel message, the new covenant in Christ, is correctly explained and interpreted. What we have of the apostolic witness is your New Testament. So, so, now that the witness of the apostles is written down in the Gospels, in, in the other letters of the New Testament, is the apostolic witness. So your faith, a lot of times we say it's grounded in the Word of God. Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 15 when he's talking about the resurrection, he's saying that like, yeah, these people saw him, these people saw him, there's 500 people that saw him. And he's, but he says it is all according to the Scriptures. And now his witness is a part of the Scriptures. So that's what we're saying with that. So, turn over to 2 Corinthians 12.12 a moment.
Now this passage is going to tell you that in addition to the apostles having seen Christ, having, having witnessed his resurrection, there were other gifts that were accompanying being an apostle. And it says there, the signs, right? A lot of times I'll talk about the signs, sign gifts, right? Not just miraculous gifts, because we've already said that every gift of the Spirit is a miraculous gift, however, you know, unimportant you think it is, gift of administration, uh, gift of logistics or whatever, you know, things that I don't value as much. Um, I really do, but it's not, they don't come natural to me. Um, he says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. Okay, so I don't, I don't really even know all the specifics of the signs that were done. But things like um, uh, a man is um, bitten by a snake uh, on the one island when Paul's being taken to Rome, and, and Paul fixes him. Yeah, boom, it's done. You know, there's, there's signs that accompany his apostleship. Peter, when he is uh, going to the temple to worship, there's an invalid there. He says, give me some money. Peter says, I don't have any money to give you, but what I do have to give you, I give you. And he says, get up and walk. Now, you just think, well, that's just a normal miracle. You know, great. That's awesome. Well, let's all do that. You miss the context. Peter does this miracle right in front of the temple. Why do you think he does it right in front of the temple? <laughs> as a testimony, as a witness to the unbelieving leadership of the Jews who had just crucified Christ, as a, as a testimony to them, you better repent because you crucified the Messiah and I'm a witness to you because I'm doing these signs and wonders in your presence, you should not attribute what we're doing to some uh, terrible power. You should attribute it to the Holy Spirit who was sent from heaven by Jesus Christ. So it's a witness against the unbelieving Jewish leadership. Why well, he does it right there. Remember, the Jews are always seeking signs. <laughs> um, and so he does these things. Um, what I gave you, the, the one is from Acts 3, by the way. Um, the guy gets up and starts leaping and jumping right in the temple, praising the Lord. I mean, it's just amazing. Talk about a testimony of the, of, of the Holy Spirit working because of the resurrected Christ, and the Jews still begin to persecute the church. <clears throat> Acts 5, turn to Acts 5, 14 through 16. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were 80% healed. <laughs> All right, now why would he why would at this point in the early church, I just this is what I'm just repeating myself, why would he want everyone that comes next to Peter get healed? 
Because he wants to tell the unbelieving Jews, Jesus has risen, he's living inside of Peter, and you better not blaspheme the Holy Spirit in the same way that you blasphemed Christ when he was on the cross. And I think this is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Denying Christ in the face of the Holy Spirit doing these works right in front of them. Now, I, I asked the question, and I said this earlier. Find me the person who has the gift of healing such that all who come under their shadow are healed. Because I would love to bring them Jenny, and I'd love to bring them my brother, who's a quadriplegic. This is not occurring today. Am I denying that God heals people? I am not. Am I denying that he could take Jenny even now and heal her like that? I'm not. But I do not think someone has the gift of healing like they did in the early church. Acts 28, flip over there. Well, let's go to Acts 20 first. I got these backwards. This is one of my favorites. Acts 20, verses 9 to 12. A young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. The preacher goes on. Imagine that. He's overcome by sleep and he falls from a third story and was taken up dead. What does Paul do? Huh? Keeps preaching. Woof. First he goes down, wraps him up in his arms. He's alive. All right, let's go on preaching. Okay? That's not happening, guys. I don't care what you say. Somebody has the gift of healing. If they were doing this, we would know it. And not just once, but a regular work of the Spirit. Acts 28, 8 and 9. This is uh, Paul heading, I don't know if he's in Rome or I don't know exactly where this is. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island, this is on his journey to Rome, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. Bingo. There's no like, hey, we've got a guy who's a healer, uh, but he's not healing here because, you know, you really don't have enough faith or you're quenching the spirit. or It's not that way. <clears throat> what I think is clear from here, this is a partial summary, a partial example. We don't have an example of all the apostles, but it's enough of an example to show us that the apostles possess gifts of healing, miracles, and even prophecy. I don't th- what I say is, I don't think the gift of healing rests upon an individual. I am not saying that God doesn't do healings today. 
It's a big difference. Huge difference. I'd be denied that the Spirit does these things. Of course he's, you know, why would you ever pray? It's a big difference. But I don't believe that the gift of healing rests on an individual in the same way that it rested on the apostles in that time. <clears throat> that answer your question? Yeah. Absolutely. And I would argue that it's no less of a healing that God has healed Robin from cancer, even though that it was using um, chemotherapy and surgery and different things. God's still the one that healed her. She couldn't, she could have died of cancer. Many people have, right? So um, there's just a, um, there's a different level. Like we can all acknowledge when you pray for someone and then God does a work you can all acknowledge God's providential hand, his healing, and even call it miraculous in some sense. But it's not this sign gift that was laid upon the early church as a demonstration that you should believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. That's the point. After apostleship, what's the next one? Prophecy. Okay. Um, the man who led me to the Reformed faith was a follower of Wayne Grudem. Does anybody know who Wayne Grudem is? Wayne Grudem begins, he thinks that there is an Old Testament level of prophecy and that there is a New Testament level of prophecy, that they're different. They're related, but different. Um, it's my contention, as much as I respect this man who led me to the Reformed faith and think that he is, I don't know where he stands on this issue right now, um, but it's my contention that I think that there is only one type of prophecy in Scripture. You're either a true prophet or you're a false prophet. There's not like two types of true prophets. <laughs> In Scripture, um, there's no argument for that that I can find anywhere. Okay, so let's talk about this. What is the essence of prophecy? What did the Old Testament prophet do? Let's talk about, let's say, Elijah, or let's talk about um, Moses, or let's talk about um, Ezekiel. What were the elements of a prophet in the Old Testament? What's that? Well, even before they spoke God's word, they had to receive God's word. What's that? Yeah, especially up here. They had to receive God's word because you can't speak God's word unless you receive God's word. If you're a false prophet, you haven't received God's word, but you're claiming to speak God's word. That's a false prophet. A true prophet receives God's word and then speaks God's word. Now, um, this, this idea of prophecy sometimes gets put on teachers and preachers because we have a sort of prophetic-like what we do when we preach. We're taking the word of God that we've already received and we're trying to expound it to people. But that's not a prophet. A prophet receives directly God's word. 
That's what they're doing. Okay? Uh, what else? Uh, what other things are attributed to these prophets? Yeah, usually the, the prophet wants you to repent and get back to the law of God. So what they're usually doing is taking the, the uh, curses and blessings of the Deuteronomic law, and they're basically looking at the king and saying, King, you better repent or you're going to be judged. Or they're, you know, they're calling God's people back to repentance. Okay? And they're using it based on the law. So the prophet's job is always to get someone to come back to the law of God. <clears throat> so turn to Deuteronomy 13. This is Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 to 5. Um, where's Barry? Yeah, give that to Laurie Pate, if you would. Read verses 1 to 5 for me, Laurie. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice, and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But the prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Okay, so there's all kinds of cool things in this passage, right? So number one... The prophet, just like the apostle, also received the ability to do signs and wonders. Right? Is it not true that Elijah did this, Elisha did this, the prophets, they, they did these things, right? So they were able to do signs and wonders. Um, but then, it's in a strange way, this is the beauty and the untamedness of Scripture, so you would think, okay, how do I know if there's a true prophet or a false prophet? Well, the true prophet actually tells you something's going to happen, and then it happens. The false prophet tells you something is going to happen, and then it doesn't happen. But what does he say in this passage? That's right. God could actually, I don't presume to know how and when God decides to do this, but God could actually send someone in your midst that could predict the future, and if that person in any way calls you to go against the law, they're a false prophet. You should stone them. Because the law is important. So here comes Jesus, 
He comes onto the scene. He's doing all kinds of miracles. He's doing all kinds of healings. He's, he's preaching. And he says to them in the Sermon on the Mount, I didn't come to abolish what? But came to fulfill it. Right? That's, he's declaring himself to be a true prophet. That's what he's doing. Which is why then he sits down in the Sermon on the Mount and he basically expounds the Deuteronomic law. That's what he's doing. Because a true prophet should, should not do this. One thing that I would argue a lot of times is that, uh, praise the Lord, that many in the charismatic movement still say, we want to follow the Bible. And although I think that they're off on their understanding of tongues and prophecy, and we'll get to that as we keep moving along, I think that they are, their commitment to the Bible is commendable, and I praise the Lord for it. If they're drawing people to the Word of God, that's a good thing. Right? We should all be happy about that. And when a Pentecostal has a greater love for the Word of God than a Presbyterian, shame on us. But it happens. Sometimes. Not all the time. Sometimes there's a greater desire for the gift than it is just for the Word of God. And that's a bad thing. And this is where I think the, the more that the church as a whole gets away from their understanding of the Word of God, we can expect this, the charismatic movement to more and more get off its course. And if you talk to some of the people that talk about the NAR movement, and I mean, it's getting crazy. In a way that when I was in 1970s thinking about the charismatic gifts, it, it was so much more in line with the Scripture most of the way. They just believed in this gift. Now it's kind of like, man, they're believing all sorts of crazy stuff. Because the Word of God has to ground us. And if you get away from the Word of God, you are a false prophet. Period. Oh boy. Um, let's see here. All right, we'll we'll pick this up um, next week. Um, just want to try to see here. Um, so we'll we'll have to, in a sense. Um, talk a little bit about you know the rest of these uh, offices teachers miracles gifts of healing administrating all that kind of stuff we'll go through those but really not until we get to chapter 14 do we get into um, the two primary uh, gifts of contention back then and also today which were prophecy and tongues and chapter 13 will be um, I don't think it'll take us a whole lot of time to go through chapter 13 so we'll probably get into chapter 14 next week because um, nobody really denies what's going on in 13. We just don't often connect it, see its significance wedged between chapter 12 and chapter 14. So, All right, let me close this. Father, thank you so much for the Holy Spirit again. Thank you so much for the Word of God, and thanks for the people here. I pray, Father, that you might uh, not make us proud, that your Spirit would make us um, humble, and that we would yearn and hunger and thirst for the truth of your word. And forgive us, Lord, for um, caring more about ourselves than the rest of the body. In Jesus' name, amen.